and welcome to the 21 Soul Music Podcast. I'm your host, Lewis Marks, and on this show I'm sharing intimate interviews with musicians from around the world. In my role at Ropadope Records, I have the opportunity to interview artists as they prepare for a new release. I want to get some backstory, a narrative, and an understanding of why they made this record. Today on the show, Mr. Nate Worth. Nate grew up in northwestern Indiana, playing in the marching band, and then soon following his brother's path to the University of North Texas. He envisioned his future in classical music, more symphony than playing in bars, but when he arrived at UNT, he found a broad array of adjunct faculty teaching many styles of world percussion, from West African to Afro-Cuban to East Indian. Nate jumped straight in and collected experience in different ensembles, eventually switching to general ed and continuing to play where he felt more of a sense of community. If you've had the pleasure of watching Snarky Puppy, you'll see Nate actively adding flavor to the mix with some very unusual instruments. Nate points out that as a young man, he was a big fan of Aphex Twin, and he takes that perspective of a studio musician designing sound with a suite of tools directly to the stage. The latest album from Ghost Note, Nate's project with Robert Sput Seawright, is entitled Swagism, and it's beyond simple description. These are accomplished musicians, steeled by necessity, driven by the groove, and determined to reach people. Nate talks about the formation of Ghost Note, the challenges of making swagism, and the moment he realized he was the only white guy in the band. start my questions but actually one of my first questions right out of the gate is uh want to want to just ask about you and Sput. you probably met at unt but or or thereabouts right but but the question is you know how, how did you two develop the relationship to to uh continue to work together and create ghost note oh, i think you know it was just through the relationship of turkey puppy really getting to play together and solo together on the road and there was some chemistry, you know, musically between us. And so it was kind of easy to, to play together and fans were getting kind of mesmerized by the, you know, the improvisation we were able to do as a unit. And so it kind of made us feel like, well, maybe we should, we should take this further and do our own thing. So, I mean, obviously it's, a, it's, it's, quite a thing to play next to Sput, right? Um, process of Snarky Puppy, um, was, was, it, was it set up in such a way uh, that you two were kind of able to, to riff and go on and, and create an experiment on your own within the Snarky Puppy framework? And, and, that's, and that you wanted to take further? I think somewhat. I mean, you know, there were things that we were, we could, we could do within Snarky Puppy and and then there were things that we wanted to do that like you know we couldn't you know that uh maybe what we were hearing wasn't exactly what the songwriter or what Mike was hearing and you know we were really it was kind of like well let's do the let's let's do both you know but uh I think you know just being able to call the shots yourself you know from behind the drums is was important to us instead of, you know, kind of having to tiptoe sometimes around some of our ideas. So, so at some point you decided to, to form ghost note. How, how did you come up with the name? Oh man. I'm trying to remember. We had a text message stream just going back and forth, trying to think of a name for the group. And I think, uh, I went to sleep one night and I woke up and I was just like ghost note. That's it. I think it just came to me. <laughs> there you go. So I, I get the feeling that, you know, a good part of it is not just, okay, well, we want to, we want to, you know, we have this drums and percussion thing we want to do together, but also, uh, and you mentioned it already, but I just, maybe you can elaborate on it. Like the fans responding to what you're doing, were people messaging you? Is this like happening in the live performances and people are coming up to you? Like, it feels like a lot of this is created to the fans. Is that accurate? Yeah. 
Yeah, accurate. Um, you know, live shows coming up to us afterwards and freaking out and you know, to me and Spud, it wasn't it wasn't a thing because you know we were just making up stuff on the spot and it was that and it was also you know I think uh, you know it's nice you know in, in this in this world in the, in the music industry as it currently is I think everyone you know if you're a professional musician you have to have something that you can call your own and I think that's a big part of it I think both Sput and I wanted to. Uh, have a band that that we could call our own and that we could we could you know book and schedule gigs and 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 see if you know at first really it was just let's see if if anything you know bites or if it feels right and after the after making the first record you know it was like well this feels right and so we took it on the road and I remember the first few tours we weren't getting really outside the box too much we were kind of just playing the compositions and then you know we we found the right group of guys and we started stretching the songs and things started happening and and that's when it started feeling right it started feeling like you know when you can as a group as a band you know stretch on a song and kind of go somewhere that you never thought it could go then it starts feeling right you know and that's kind of where we're where we're at right now. All right. So the next person into Gosa was uh, Nick. Is that right? Your bro? Yeah, my brother was kind of a crucial member in, I guess you would call it phase one, maybe phase two. I don't know. But uh, yeah, Nick was a crucial part to take the band on the road because he could do any sound, any instrument through his instrument, the Xylosense. And then uh, he kind of got busy and he was, he, it was tough for him to commit to some dates, to some dates. So we had to go a new route about a year ago and that's when we added a keyboard player. And that really changed the sound of the band again. And who is that? You know, I think finding, well, now currently it's, uh, it's Xavier Taplin. He's our first call. And then there's this other guy, Vaughn Henry. He's our second call. But I think adding, you know, sonically a keyboard player, it, it allows for the soloist to go to further places. Then, uh, you know, a keyboard player can, can comp and play chords you know, in the direction that the soloist is going or even challenge the soloist. Uh, whereas before it was kind of more of like a set chord progression that the soloist would play over. Because Nick is a phenomenal player, you know, and, and keyboard player, but that's not really his bag. Gotcha. So adding a keyboard player kind of opened up some doors for us and knocked down some walls. So then let's talk about who's next uh, after that. Who else is in the band? Well, you know, then the addition of a bass player, which happened before that, but, you know, A.J. Brown, he's got a real big sound. And so at first it was really just drum drummers and a bass player. And then uh, we added Sly as well, a sax player, because we needed a soloist. And... You know, you wouldn't even think about needing a, a guitar player or anything like that with AJ because his sound is just so big and he plays, he can he can play the bass in different ways that a lot of bass players can't. And it's just real funky. But he threw his back out <laughs> on one of the tours when he was uh, exercising for his wedding. And so it put us in a weird it put us in a weird position because we we're in the middle of a tour and he could barely stand. Oh. And so I I told him I was like you know I we're gonna have to send you home because this just isn't gonna be good for you and you know you don't want to mess with your back. And so he didn't really want to he wanted to tough through it, but I I talked him into letting me fly him home. Wow. And we found Mono Neon was available. 
Nice. And his mom actually drove him to the first gig. <laughs> She's really sweet. Yeah. She's nice. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, when he came into the rotation, it was just like, oh, shit, man, maybe we need two bass players now. <laughs> wow. You know, at any time, like, Fly couldn't make a tour on sax. So when we would find a sub, you know, the first sub was, was Jonathan Monez. Uh-huh. And it was just like, we. I would, instead of just having one come in and one go out, I was like, well, let's do an overlap so Jonathan can get the vibe. And when we did the overlap, you know, they were playing together on some of the stuff. And that opens up more doors, you know, with, us being able to harmonize and you know now the now the sax section is it, it can be more than just a soloist you know now now they can play figures together and they can play pads in the background you know so it, it just makes them a whole nother instrument instead of just a soloist and so after that we were like well maybe it's a six piece now or a seven piece and you know, I think it just keeps on growing, but really, we, we can the the anything less than six is feels a little empty. But uh, any combination of six or seven players at this point, whether it's uh, two saxes, one bass, drums, percussion, and keys, it could be two basses, one sax, drum, percussion, and keys. And Mono also plays guitar, so so sometimes now it's it's half the gig. Mono's playing guitar if AJ's there. If Mono's the only bass player, we have a guitar player now. Uh, he's out of Portland, Oregon. His name's Peter Nudson, and so it's it's kind of like this nine-sided die, I guess. But we we kind of roll the die and figure out who's going on each tour never-ending evolution as well no way it can yeah happen. you know of any other bands that have, have kind of started from that just core rhythm and then built out in that way i don't know there's got to be something i don't know that i can't think of anything off, off the top of hand yeah it's certainly not something that that that, that is common you know you know or might be extremely rare um, and I'll focus on that. It's just, you know, sort of like an evolving outward kind of project. Can you, um, do you have a personal bio, Nate, or do, do you want to just give me some, some, some basic points about your upbringing, especially, you know, your bro as well. Where, where did you guys grow up? And um, yeah, I mean, I have what I can, I can send to you, but I can also talk about it. Northwest Indiana, real close to Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess we were both kind of big, big parts in, uh, you know, our community and like the, the marching band and the, you know, band related ensembles and programs through the school. I think that's what kind of got us a, sort of addicted to music. Public high school? Uh, yeah, public high school. And uh, we were fortunate that we had a, at that time, you know, the funding was good and there were great teachers kind of over us and exposing us to all different types of music and uh, things like that. And so, you know, Nick's older than me, so he was the first to decide that he was going to go to college for music, you know, and seeing that whole process, you know, made me kind of take music a little bit more serious and practice a little harder. But in my mind, you know, I, I was going to be uh, involved in classical music and symphony and orchestra, not so much, uh, you know, playing in bars. <laughs> still, still in, but in percussion. Yeah, 
but in percussion. Okay. So, you know, that all, I went to North Texas, mm -hmm. uh, obviously, kind of followed in my brother's footsteps, uh, but in a very different way. Uh, when I got to school there, you know, they have so much adjunct faculty teaching world percussion, anything from like West African music, Afro-Cuban, Brazilian, Gamelan, South Indian, just all these worlds of percussion that I just kind of, you know, jumped both feet into this world. And I, once I would do a, a group, I wouldn't want to not do it. So every semester that passed, I just started, you know, I kind of collected another world music ensemble that I was a part of. And that just grew until I was doing every single one that was offered. Wow. And then my teachers started well, one, my head teacher, you know, the, the head of the percussion program and the scholarships, he was kind of like, hey, you know, it seems like you're getting a little distracted with all this and your scholarship is m more about symphony and orchestra. And I think you should maybe next semester, you know, not do all these groups and focus on that. And I just couldn't do it. And so I switched to general ed. And I kind of did away with all of the uh, orchestra and symphony stuff. I just kind of got burned out on it. And uh, I didn't really feel a sense of belonging. You think that teacher well, you know, just failed to understand your The teacher what? That, that he just failed to understand your true nature of exploration. Maybe, I don't know. I think, you know, it's tough to teach someone, you know, I think I was like 18 or 19 at the time. One, in, in one person's eyes, they see, you know, that clearly, you know, I want to be a, you know, maybe like a world percussionist type instead of classical music. And then, you know, someone else sees like that, I'm just having too much fun in this other stuff and I'm distracting myself from what my true calling is. But, you know, I mean, I respected it and I thought about it and I just wasn't enjoying music in the, in that, in that world. And I wasn't really even socializing with people and that were doing the classical music stuff and, or studies and and I was meeting all these peers my age in the jazz world and so you know they were like man there's no percussionists you know and we're doing all this music that's heavy on percussion and so I kind of crossed over and I just became a general ed major that did all the percussion ensembles as well as uh, on the jazz side you know any lab band that needed a percussionist that I was kind of their guy. Nice. You, you uh, I always notice when you're playing that there's always another, uh, I don't want to call it a toy. <laughs> I'm sure they're all serious instruments, but you, you, you play a lot of different things. Is Are you discovering this just in general through your studies or? It's like I'm always waiting for that moment on some of the videos. Like, what is Nate gonna pull out and and play right now? Is that am I am I tripping? Is that right? You like a lot of different. I, yeah, I think I always like unique sounds. Uh -huh. One thing I'm a big fan of on of other percussionists is creating like a a percussion like sound palette. I guess if if you want to put it into words for a particular song instead of just always playing you know your standard sort of go-to conga bongo tambourine shaker cowbell like i i really like the percussionists that were creating unique sounds 
So I've always been a fan of that. Putting a little decoration. I think, a, right? Yeah. That, I think, being a fan of electronic music when I was younger, I was really into uh, this, this guy, Aphex Twin. Uh-huh. And his, like, his entire every song he's ever created all the sounds that he uses not none of it is you would ever hear before because he designed every sound and that just always really kind of moved me and i always tried to find like a similar situation but just with real things instead of creating them inside of a laptop you know Interesting, because one looking could and, and hearing your story could think that, well, a lot of that comes from whatever, you know, studies in African instrumentation or rhythm. But but to hear that Aphex Twin is an inspiration is really that that kind of makes some good sense of it all for me or balances that out, at least. Um, wow. Um, so can we talk about, you know, when I when I listen to this record. Oh, it sounds like Ghost Note, but it sounds like so much more than I previously uh, received and in, in, in such a powerful way. How did that all evolve? Was that just natural? You're like, okay, the next record needs to be this, or did it evolve in the studio with the different people? I think it happened because, you know, growing into that studio session, Maybe six weeks out, uh, Nick was still, my brother was still scheduled to be like, you know, a core member of the group. And so, Butt and I kind of wrote towards that because with Nick's instrument, it's very unique. And it's if he can't make a tour, you can't just call another Xylosynth player. Right. You know, and be like, hey, can you sub? Like, because no one does it. No one does what my brother does, basically. Hmm. So, six weeks out, he kind of called me and had the heart to heart and was like, man, I, there's this other group I'm involved with, and I, I really got to dedicate my time towards this, which I can absolutely respect. And, you know, but it made Sput and I have to make a decision and so we couldn't really find it was too late to find like a a keyboard player that would be like our keyboard player that we would take on the road and do everything and so instead we approached it like we need a guy that'll be great in the studio and have a unique sound you know, that that we'll be able to just get these songs down on tape. And, you know, and then after the session, we can continue to look for a keyboard player. So we reached out to, you know, all of the huge hitters that are all, you know, musical, musical directors for so many different people that don't have time. And most of them weren't available. And, you know, so then there was this one guy that, you know, is like a kind of a a child prodigy sort of player and just, you know, maybe 20 years ahead of his time uh, in like the jazz world. His name's Michael Palma. And he's an amazing piano player uh, and keyboard player. And so he was able to do the session and so you know having having a like a keyboard rig with like Rhodes and Whirly and Oregon and you know Profits and Moogs and like every board you could imagine sonically it just kind of opens up these doors for us and so when you're able to to practice a composition and these sounds are kind of coming in, it changes the way the drum, it changes the way I play, it changes the way Sput plays. You know, it opens up sonically, it's kind of hard to explain, but we're just able to get into some grooves that we 
we wouldn't have approached the competition that way. And also being in an amazing studio, the part, you know, we recorded in New Orleans at the parlor. Uh-huh. But I think, you know, I think having all of us in the same room and on the session, it was, you know, it was Sput, myself, AJ, and Mono. At, at sometimes it was all three sasses, Jonathan, Sly, and Jelani. And uh, then we had Michael Palma. And then as a guest, we knew on the record we wanted to have a handful of guests. And the first one was Nigel Hall, who lives in New Orleans. So that made it real easy. And so he's also a keyboard player. So we knew we wanted to feature him on keyboard solos. And, uh, and you know, no offense to Michael Palmer or anything. We, we knew that he wasn't the guy for us for touring. Uh, we just knew he was kind of a placeholder. Uh, there's some some things that he does naturally that we love and, and that other things that we love, but we knew it wasn't the direction for Ghost Note. And so, you know, I think being in the studio and, and not really knowing what the record was going to be, how many tracks were going to be on the record, all I did was I sent out an email as soon as, you know, Nick was like, I'm not going to be a core member. Uh, some of my compositions kind of got thrown out at that point because, you know, it, it was part of that xylosynth relationship. Um, and so because of that, we were short some songs. And so Sput pulled out some that he had written in the past. And, and I sent out an email to all the guys like, hey, you know, if you have a song you want to write or if you have a song that you wrote, that you think would fit with Ghost Note, bring it in and, and we'll try it out. And so Mono brought a song to the table and it fit perfectly with the vibe of the band. And then Fly really came through and brought in like four songs. Nice. Um, that are very different now than, you know, what they were when he brought them in. But he still brought in four things that we can mold and work with. And then Sput, you know, had, a, he's always writing music. So he pulled out some compositions that were originally RSVP compositions that nothing really came with that. And so at this point now, you know, we had, shit, we had like 13 or 14 songs. And so it was just like a struggle to get them all to have enough time to record all of them, you know? Wow. But we didn't really know what we had, I think, until maybe halfway through the through the record. And it just seemed like every song we'd work on, we'd finish it and be like, damn, that's the best one. <laughs> and then we'd do another one and it'd be the same reaction. And so very quickly we started realizing that we really had uh, a great record on the horizon. Beautiful. Now, at, at, at some point, um, there's a decision to do the interludes. When, when does that enter as presenting this as sort of a start to finish piece with those interludes in? Well, after we would record the song, a song, you know, sometimes we just mess around and we'd be joking around, you know, and so we started joking like, oh yeah, that'll be an interlude. And early on in the in the recording process, I kind of had this idea that I, I wanted the music all to kind of blend from one one song to the next. I think I've always liked that when an artist does that in a record where each song kind of blends into each other instead of having that silence in between tracks. And uh, I, I wanted, if there was going to be any moment of silence on the record, I wanted it to be there for a reason, you know, to kind of clear your, to clear your head. 
Uh, and Spud was agreeing with that. And then also, we wanted to capture. It, it's also about the vibe of a record, you know. Uh, I think when it when you just do the songs and then the song ends and it's silence and it goes to the next song, it's like that's great, but you it doesn't really show you know the world the vibe and the beliefs of the band and so what we started doing was on tours we would either host jam sessions at people's houses or you know kind of take over a jam session at someone's house or rehearsal space and once you know we kind of took over all the instruments one of us usually me or sly would would do like a voice memo and really we were doing that because it was like shit we're creating songs on the spot we need to record this and there were some moments that weren't recorded when we first started doing this but it was a way for us to bond on the road xavier had you know just joined the group on keys and you know from his first show with no rehearsal we were like man the vibe feels right his instincts are you know taking us places where sput and i you know feel really like like a sense of belonging to and so after a couple missed opportunities it was like okay we're never going to miss an opportunity again and so everyone was kind of on call it was like yo if you're not playing and something awesome is happening after hours like press voice memo you know record that shit and so we just we would get in the van the next morning we'd be like all right who recorded you know and then send the phones up and we'd listen to it on the drive and that started becoming like a thing and you know little did we realize that we were recording these interludes for the record i mean some of the interludes we actually recorded in the studio and so the sound quality is a lot better but you know when we started listening to the voice memo stuff it was like there's so many good moments and instead of re-recording them why don't we just go with this low sound quality and make it a vibe yeah. and then there are also moments of comedy in the van you know dealing with trump as a president and this like every morning waking up and you know we're like trying to keep the energy light and positive and i have my phone set to like different news notifications and it was just like a every morning just on to waking up to just like a some sort of horrible thing or something that would worry us and so all of us as a group you know instead of just going negative we'd try to find comedy in all of it and so there's some funny moments like that that were recorded and but really i mean you know it's just about showing that you know like it's 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 a it's a family it's a brotherhood you know ghost note is a crew of guys and it's like we're not just showing up to the gig and sound checking and everyone going their separate ways afterwards it's it's about the hang and it's about you know multicultural friendships and you know there's so many we all come from different backgrounds and uh but at the same time you know we can learn from each other and i think that that is like a resonating theme in our band. Yeah, yeah. That that's. I'm glad I asked about the interludes because that's really powerful. And that and that leads me right to the, the really the full story. It's a beautiful thing. Did 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 the guests all come to the parlor, or was some of the stuff done in L.A.? Uh. So yeah. So really, you know. 
having guests on the record was something that Sput and I juggled. <clears throat> Excuse me for one second. Uh, having guests on the record was something that we kind of juggled with the positives and negatives. You know, we, we, we wanted to create a record that that we could perform the music without guests. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you're listening to some of these compositions and you're like, man, you know who would sound amazing on this? you know, solo section and, you know, that producer sort of element always comes out in spot because he's a producer first more than anything. And, you know, with me kind of hanging around him for shit, almost 13 years now. Oh, you know, a little bit of that has rubbed off because I've seen, you know, what can come out of that. And, and it sort of just kind of lifts up the whole band. And then the band, you know, without that guest on the road can go that in that direction. Um, but kind of using a guest artist to show the rest of the band, like, you know, this is the vibe I'm, I'm talking about, um, is a really easy way to find that, that sound. And so after having Nigel featured on one or two songs, it, it, then it became, oh, well, well, this will be his main feature, but let's also have him playing keys on this song and this song, and it's not like a solo, it's just him comping, but it's a nice way to have him on there. And then Alvin Ford was planned, and so we, we had Alvin come in and play double drums on some stuff and even take a drum solo. And then as far as in the studio, uh, I believe that was it. And then uh, listening to the tracks and talking about what we're going to do and who we'd like to involve if we were going to involve people and what felt natural. You know, with the, with the addition of Xavier, it was like, oh, we got to get him on the record because he's part of the band now. And so it kind of started with that. And then my friend owns a studio in LA. He bought a house and converted it into a studio. And I, maybe four years ago, I introduced Sput to him. And Sput got really got along with him and hit it off and loved the place and realized there was an, a spare room. And so, you know, that's where Sput stays now when he's in LA kind of became a roommate of my buddy which was great because you know now we have this studio that we can pretty much for free you know do overdubs and stuff like that and so I'm trying to think who the first you know how we did this I think what happened was after a ghost note tour Sput and I flew to LA and at that moment, we only had maybe nine, maybe 11 songs on the record. And so, you know, we were like, we got to finish this record. We got to, and Spelt was like, I got a couple of interlude ideas that I want us to record. And so we went to Ben's doing that. And after recording, you know, two or three interludes, some of, one of them felt like a song and I, and I was like, where are you going with this? And he's like, well, you know, I, I think I'm going to call Raja who's this guitar player. And I think I'm just going to have him, you know, make up some stuff and I'm going to play some chord progressions on a keyboard to give him a guide. And I'm, I'm just going to let him go, whatever he plays. And so Raja sends this back and it's like a whole new song. <laughs> and then, you know, then at this point, we're like, well, shit, who else should we feature? And because it was so cool to see, you know, something that we, me and Spuck created that originally was like going to be like a drum heavy sort of percussion type moment on the record. And it very quickly changed into another song. 
just by a guest artist putting their spice on it. And so, you know, that kind of became like crack. It was like, well, well, who else can we get on here to bring this record up to another level? And so we just started throwing out names and uh, we knew we wanted lyricists on the record. We, we knew we wanted words on the record. At the same time, you know, it was just about finding people that had the time and that also looked at the music as an opportunity and not like a gig. Right. We were looking for people that wanted to record on the record as and to be a part of something like, you know, not to get a paycheck. And so, you know, at first, you know, we, we were going to get a Charlie, uh, Charlie Tuna who said yes and was, was available, but we just kept on missing each other. So unfortunately we never got him on the record, but he kind of, that idea of having like a, someone to rap, we were like, well, let's go with the underdogs. And so Sput knew a handful of guys that no one knows about and they're amazing and they're killing. And, you know, there's a couple moments on the record where these guys who nobody knows about, you know, it's just, they just changed the song or just made the song what it is. And, you know, I think that speaks a lot for what Ghost Note is kind of all about is, you know, from the beginning, we didn't want a sax player that was, uh, you know, too busy. Uh, we didn't want a keyboard player that played in a, a thousand groups already and didn't have any time for us, obviously. So we were looking for people that were hungry and wanted, wanted gigs and that were available. And so I think that transcended into the guest artist portion of the record. I, I think the majority of the guests are amazing musicians um, that should have a lot more gigs than what they currently have but they don't, you know, and then some are like people like Kamasi Washington. And, you know, I ran into Kamasi when I landed in LA because we were, Sput and I were on separate flights and uh, I was at baggage claim and I saw, and Kamasi was standing at the same claim and we had met a handful of times and no, knew each other through Terrace Martin. And so I walked up to him. I was like, what's up Kamasi? And, he remembered me and he was a, you know, really awesome dude. And he was asking, you know, we're just doing small talk. He's asking what I'm doing in town. I'm like, Oh, you know, I'm finishing the ghost note record with Sput. And at that point, you know, he hadn't really heard any of our music, but he had heard about the group and there was a buzz kind of going a little bit. And he was like, man, I can't wait to hear it. And I was like, yeah, you know, absolutely. And so I, I told him he should come by if he had a, a, a free moment, you know, come hang and catch up with Sput. And so when I got to the house, you know, I was like, damn, I was like, we should get Kamasi on this record. You know, just based, based on the fact that he's such a down-to-earth guy and, you know, also an amazing player. And Sput was like, yeah, I think that's a good idea. And, you know, and obviously – Kamasi was down and he's on the record now so a lot of it is kind of like a kind of a coincidence as well and I think when you're making a record you just gotta use the tools that are right in front of you and sometimes you know that can just turn into some really special moments mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's interesting to hear you to hear you say it in, in such a casual way too because there are a lot of names and guests on this record where I mean fans will just be like yeah that's amazing but I but you know having known you a little bit but uh you know I know folks like uh Phil Lasseter Weedy uh Nigel Hall Bobby Sparks that's that's just your your, your crew of friends you know people that you know you know um in addition to that you mentioned you know Justin etc so um pretty exciting um I got a story right here. This is good. Um, is there anything else that you want to say, you know, that you want this record to kind of say to the world? 
Oh, definitely. You know, because, like, you know, a lot of these songs were unnamed. Uh, or we just had placeholder names for them. And, you know, at this point, when we were in the naming process, we didn't really have any lyrics on the record. Uh, but in within, like, sort of mid-2017, you know, there was a lot of frustration happening. Um and on one of these tours, you know, I never really realized it, which is kind of silly, but uh, I don't know. But I, I never realized that I was the only white person in Ghost Note. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're sitting, we're at like a diner after a show. You know, it's like four in the morning. Everyone's hungry. So we're eating. And the waitress comes up and she's like, y'all must be a band. And we're like, yeah, we're a band. What gave it away? She's like, well, y'all look like musicians except for this one. And she points to me. <laughs> and she goes, you must be the manager. And all of us were like, oh, my God. You know, like, this is so fucking, like, what is wrong with America? Like, so stereotypical. But we all laughed about it, you know. It's funny. But that kind of, like. Tragic kind of way. Yeah. Yeah, it's so. You know, we're, I'm in the, I'm like, I just made me really think. And I'm just like in the van. I'm like, guys, like, I don't, I didn't realize I'm the only white person in this group. <laughs> and everyone's laughing and stuff. And, you know, it's so that kind of made me think, you know, a little more about us and about, you know, about racism and how it just did in, in our little world, you know, it, none of that exists you know like it does it's not even something that for a moment you know comes up race never comes up and you know it just made me think you know why why is the world so racially charged and so you know me and Scott, i was like you know i think we should use this release of this record uh, is more of a statement, you know, to, to race and to racism and uh, any type of prejudice, you know, sexism or, you know, equality. And so it, it just kind of stuck with me. And so when, when we were coming up with song names, you know, I would listen to the song and I'd be like, you know, this, this to me feels like uh, I like the title No More Silence. And so I would write it down, you know, and I'd go to the next song. And and a lot of these song titles, you know, I, I kind of wrote down four or five options and then I would call Sput and I'd be like, what do you think? And I'd ramble them off and one of them, you know, would really resonate with him or maybe it would it would make him come up with a similar title. Uh, or, you know, inspire him to come up with the title. And so, you know, for instance, No More Silence was a song title. It was an instrumental track. And then, you know, the song title inspired Sput to contact a spoken word artist. And she does this incredible spoken word, you know, two-minute performance over the music and so many things in there are, are are important i think for our listeners to hear and so you know the the record started out being you know this incredible instrumental you know funky but genre bending sort of music and i was getting really excited and i was like man this is you know this is kind of the way i felt when we were working on you know, this snarky puppy record or whatever. And, you know, that went on to, you know, gain some awards and, and really kind of put the band in a, in a new light. And so I was like, we're on a, we're on a really good track. So like towards the end of the record, when, you know, we're, we're adding these song titles that, 
have a bigger meaning than just the music. And then adding lyricists, you know, who just went above and beyond what Sput and I ever thought. It's just created this message across the music, you know, about unity and peace and love. And I just think that that's an incredible journey, you know, for making a record to start somewhere and end in a place of uh, protest and uh, speaking your mind and and hoping that um, peace and love uh, resonate with the listeners, you know, and, and hopefully we we convert somebody <laughs> while they're listening to this or, or at least... Uh, influence them to speak their mind and stand up for their fellow human uh, the next time they witness someone being wrongfully treated. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening to the 21 Soul Music Podcast. If you like what we do, please subscribe. You can find us on Mixcloud, and you can go over to YouTube and find our video series as well. We're also available on Stitcher, iTunes, and wherever else podcasts are found. A big shout-out to our producer, Mr. Nick Perry. Our show is recorded in East Philadelphia at the Ropadope Room. I want to say thank you to musicians who contribute music to the world and to this podcast. And a big thank you to those of you who have taken the time to listen. We hope you enjoy the show.